COVID-19 has put the failings of the healthcare system under the spotlight. And in this harsh light, there's an opportunity. We've learned so much from how people can and are willing to receive care going forward. Let's not force everyone back into an old system that just never worked in the first place. That's Dr. Phil Levy. He's director of the Center for Population Health Accountability at Wayne State and one of the folks we're talking with today. He's got a point worth exploring. Don't let a pandemic go to waste. Today, we're looking into what was learned about racial inequity from the pandemic and the group of people that's been applying these lessons in their work. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. In April 2020, Governor Gretchen Whitmer assembled a task force to target biases and barriers that have long prevented racial minorities from getting adequate medical care, something that was made abundantly clear during the early weeks of the pandemic. If you recall, COVID hit Detroit and Michigan's Black population hard early on. The Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities was called together to identify and help reduce the disparities in COVID cases. Boy, whew, that is uh, quite the stretch goal. That's Dr. Renee Kennedy, CEO of the Michigan Public Health Institute. And she was part of the task force, along with Dr. Levy. That was the, the charge, I would say, that was given us. How do we get all of these, um, not just bright folk, but dedicated, committed folk to come together and say, help our state. Maybe to expand a little bit on that, it was not so much that COVID was the only disparity condition that existed. COVID really was the great revealer of the underlying disparities that that were there before the pandemic, uh, were magnified during the pandemic. And unless we take the lessons learned from it, we'll be there after the pandemic. So that's really some of the most important stuff that came out of the Racial Disparities Task Force was a willingness to look with perhaps a different perspective on what would, what we're doing for overall health of, the, of our populations, especially the populations of color in the state of Michigan. I think we were well positioned in our state because the dialogue didn't just start with COVID the disparity dialogue. We had been talking as a state about maternal child health disparities, pregnancy disparities, infant mortalities, access to care, all types of things that then when we saw this manifesting in COVID, we weren't caught off guard. It was like, yeah, this is what happens. Sure. Dr. Kennedy, looking over the group's recommendations, one thing that that came out of this was to require implicit bias training for the state's registered and licensed healthcare workers. What does that training look like? Well, implicit bias training, um, I will just offer, um, is the beginning of the dialogue, right? This is not a one and done check, but we are all raised in a, a fairly racialized um, environment. The history of this nation was constructed around race, around haves and have nots. And we can't help but be influenced by much of that unresolved history, much of the unresolved consequences where we perhaps changed laws, but didn't necessarily change beliefs or behaviors. And so the implicit bias training is to intentionally um, educate providers, clinicians, um, that when you're coming to provide care across difference, 
whether it be gender, whether it be age, whether it be race and ethnicity, that there are likely to be some biases that impact the provision of that care, whether intentional or not. Can I ask, Dr. Kennedy, what changes you see in in relationships between patients and doctors, patients and nurses, when when healthcare workers are made aware of implicit biases? There are a number of studies that demonstrate um, and provide evidence that um, you'll begin to see things like um, um, relationship establishment happen more quickly. Um, we noticed in 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 the research that race p- providers that are of different race are um, perhaps less um, casual and bedside manner is slow in building, that that does ultimately build, but it takes longer. And so we knew that certainly in circumstances uh, like COVID, we wanted providers to see the entire patient, right? Not just let me deal with these symptoms because there were lots of things that were complicating um, not just the diagnosis, but the ultimate outcomes. Why did some people fare better with a COVID diagnosis and others did not? And so it's that awareness that um, see, we, we say sometimes seeing the invisible, making visible the invisible um, so that they can recognize that and immediately jump into um, the, the engagement in a way that will honor and contribute more likely to favorable outcomes. Dr. Levy, anything to add about what happens when people who do work in healthcare become more aware of the the baggage that they bring into the examining room? I think Renee hit on uh, a lot of the the, the points, um, but to, to reiterate one, it's really about establishing that trust relationship. And from the beginning of the encounter, you can uh, lose or gain that very quickly, depending on on some of the first words that you say. And when you lose the trust of the person you're trying to help, it's very, very difficult to recover. If that person doesn't think that I understand who they are or where they come from, or have the ability to communicate with them in a way that they're gonna appreciate uh, and and place value in, that, that whole exchange and that whole interaction is, it's gone. You know, I'll take an example of me as an emergency physician. You know, we're we're in a circumstance, the hospital I work at Detroit receiving, where we're often the the location of last resort uh, for populations that don't have great access to healthcare. And sometimes people are taking many hours of travel time, right, to get there, two or three buses and coming in with something that, you know, if they had higher social capital or differential access, you know, they wouldn't have to come to the emergency department for this. If I don't understand all of that, it's very easy to be dismissive because from a medical perspective, it's not, you know, maybe it's not an emergency. Maybe it's not something that requires, you know, that acute intervention. But at the same point in time, if not me, who? April, I think you make an important point when you say the baggage that they carry. And it's important to remember that we're, um, our governor um, established this requirement around implicit bias, but it's not about, um, providers and clinicians being bad people. You know, it's not about that individual. It is about the individual, but it also is the context of that individual. So it's the personal level, the interpersonal level, but also the cultural and the systemic and the structural factors that impact that one-on-one interaction. And the more we are aware that we are products of our environment, then we can begin to think differently about those interpersonal exchanges. Right. Thank you for that. 
Dr. Levy, I know you led a team at Wayne Health that deployed mobile clinics over the past couple of years. Aside from the ease of access, which is easy to understand based on uh, the example that you were talking about a minute ago, what are the benefits of bringing these clinics into the community rather than having folks come to a physician's office? Well, first and foremost, you remove a barrier, which is either transportation or even the impetus to make the effort to go in and and pursue health, healthcare, whatever it might be. We all know that the encounter in the physician's office is not generally a pleasant one, right? You often spend time sitting in the waiting area, uh, perhaps filling out forms that you've already filled out several different times in other settings, answering questions that you've already answered, only to then wait for a little bit longer to speak to a doctor who you may or may not have ever seen in your life, who has their back facing you a lot of the time because the doctor is under a lot of pressure to see patients in 15-minute increments and document everything in the electronic health record. And it's just a very dissatisfying engagement. By bringing care into the community, you you reimagine that engagement. We talk a lot in healthcare about patient centricity and, and putting the patient at the center of the engagement, but the engagement still has to occur within my world as a healthcare provider, which is in the facility that I work. And so by taking that away, it's not just an access point, it's a mindset point, which is not only are we making it easier for you to get care? We're coming to you and we're in your neighborhood. We're in a location uh, that you go to pray, that you you know use park facilities or what have you. You make healthcare not a special trip that someone needs to take hours out of their day to do, but something that could be integrated into their regular activities of daily living. And in that sense, you also reimagine that Healthcare is not sick care. You don't just go to the doctor when you're not feeling well, that it's part of the regular maintenance of the wellness in your life. And the other piece is it reinforces to people that this really matters. We're, it matters so much that we're coming to you. We're not just going to be passive and wait uh, for, for you to come to us because most people only engage in healthcare when they perceive a problem exists, not when they're healthy. And when they're well, but they may have risk factors like high blood pressure or diabetes or high cholesterol, or they may smoke or they may be obese or whatever it is. All of these factors contribute to worse health outcomes, but it doesn't mean people feel sick while they have them. And so getting people to recognize that just coming out and getting screened, not for things just like COVID, although that's where we started, right? This was all about, as, as Renee you know, mentioned, the state creating a resource to, to bring COVID-related care into communities. But once we're there, if we know that you have COVID, why wouldn't we want to know that you live in a house with three or five other people and that you have no way to isolate from them? And what can we do to support that? Why wouldn't we want to know that you have challenges, you know, putting food on your table and have food insecurity so we can ask about that? Why wouldn't we want to know that you have things like diabetes or high blood pressure that are going to make your outcome for COVID worse if we don't address them? And, and, and so, you know, a lot of that goes into the thinking. How do you create a system where the initial engagement is around something like COVID, but the real, the real lasting uh, perception and mindset is we're willing to come to you uh, to show you just how important it is for you to stay healthy and well. We need to take a break. More in a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. 
Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Dr. Kennedy, you mentioned some of the issues around prenatal care and and maternal mortality in Michigan. The group supported a mother infant health and equity improvement plan that that was really long overdue. Michigan has some of the worst rates of infant mortality in the country. And the numbers are just so staggeringly high for black women and also high for native women. This is a complicated issue, but can you speak to us about some of the causes and and sort of how the conversation turned on what should be done? Yeah, it, it, it is a very complex issue. There's not something unique, uniquely singular. Um, and as a matter of fact, when um, I remember having a conversation on a webinar and commented that we um, were not surprised that the disparities are worse in COVID. And uh, a, a community member said, well, if you knew that we were going to be affected more negatively, why don't you do something sooner? This is a pattern that we see. And this issue of how does race and racism get under the skin? What does it look like to deal with the chronic stress of racism, of classism, of gender oppression? And how do we begin to understand, no, this has physiological consequences for women and for infants. And so that pattern, again, as I mentioned, that we had already been studying, already been discussing, um, uh, positioned us to um, affect change more rapidly, I think, with with COVID and our COVID intervention. One of the things that um, when I think about our work as a task force, we could have very easily done things to the community. We could have very easily done things, just done them in the community, but we opted to do things with community. The reason why uh, Phil and his team were able to engage in community so readily is because they had feedback from the community. They had been listening to the voices of folk affected by the challenges. When we had a large part pot of federal dollars to distribute to communities, we didn't just get in a room and say, okay, who are the groups and who are the players and let's give them this much. No, we went to the community. We extended the process to say, how would you like us to allocate these dollars? Was it an extra step? Yes. Was it more hours? For sure. As a task force, we were a working task force, Uh, but we engaged people. And I think that's why we began to see shifts and changes. And I suspect that we'll begin to see um, similar improvements among other chronic outcomes like maternal, like the maternal child health outcomes. What were some of the some of the programs that came out of the process that, as you say, was truly working with community? Well, I mentioned the one about um, funding. How do we distribute? There were so many nonprofits and community organizations who just were not able to do their work. There were those providing um, education support and reading support um, to children with various uh, disabilities. 
they were almost shut down. There were lots of folk doing after school food, food programs and feeding programs. They were shut down. And so how did we then say, okay, let's put together a process where, um, not just sharing power, but bringing your power as a community to the table with our power as a task force so that we can resolve these and go to where the needs are instead of saying, oh, this sounds like a good idea. That sounds like a good idea. And so there were um, 33 nonprofits that received significant funding um, because we engaged in, in this sort of deeply authentic relation-based way. And um, activities continued on the west side of the state, on the southeast side of the state, in the northern part of the state. We were really, really clear about how do we optimize this opportunity uh, for a number of people. Michigan has been in a, a generationally unique position to talk about and to implement some of these things because of the budget cover that came from COVID relief money. And I'm thinking about concerns that the partnerships and programs that have blossomed uh, may be losing traction as, as funding might dry up. Could each of you say what you think needs to happen for the momentum to continue? One of the things that I've always seen and observed as a public health leader is um, when the um, emergency goes away, the need doesn't go away. So remaining vigilant and staying focused, a number of these nonprofits that we worked with um, and partnered with, we hope have greater grant writing capacity now. They had this experience. This is what it looks like to be accountable for federal dollars. And so building capacity into partners and establishing relationships that we hope will continue throughout their time serving Michiganders in various ways. Dr. Levy? You know, as an organization, Wayne State and Wayne Health that is used to writing grants and, and used to getting big funding, my goal, and I think the vision going forward, is how do you move beyond grants to a sustainable model of healthcare reimbursement? So we've done um, uh, yeoman's work, if you will, taking what started out as a COVID response and moving towards what we term portable population health, where we use data on risk in communities, including social vulnerability, to deploy our mobile units to areas where stroke rates and, and deaths are high, where heart disease death rates are high. But how do you get the payer community to think differently about what is healthcare going forward? The payers and the medical community itself are used to care being delivered and paid for in, in one way. And we've actually seen people speaking with their feet and with their cars, right? Because, you know, our mobile sites are walk up and drive through. We've had over 84,000 encounters since we started doing this work in April, 2020. And people have told us they like getting healthcare this way. They like being able to pull up in their car, roll down their window, get their blood pressure measured, get blood worked on and go on their business and get a follow-up phone call from a nurse and you know a community health worker who's working with them to meet their medical and social needs. How do you convince the payers to do that? And that's been a, our big mission over the last you know six, eight months. And, and I'm very happy to say we've gotten traction around this idea where the payers are saying, hey, it's better to reimagine how we do healthcare and pay for it rather than people not come at all for healthcare. Because a lot of the payers have people that they cover who don't use services until it's too late, until they're on dialysis or they have that stroke that puts them at risk. Let's get this prevention mindset in everyone's forethought, especially those who, who pay for the, the healthcare we deliver. And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Baer. 
You can find full stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's pod was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Cabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.